Right, a very good evening to you. Uh, we are in Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13. We have finished, having concluded chapter 12 last week, we have finished the introduction, um, which itself has an introduction kind of on the inside, and there's an introduction with that. So we're done with all the introductory stuff. Now, as we open chapter 13, we're going to begin with this chapter through chapter 23. So an 11-chapter stretch of burdens, and that's you'll see there. It, that's how my translation puts it. I'm curious to know if your Bibles also say the same thing in 13 verse 1. Does your Bible say the burden of Babylon? Huh? The oracle of Babylon? Okay. So the word means a heavy load. Um, the oracles is a phrase found in the New Testament. Um, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man hear, let him hear. That's the King James. So your translation may vary. But um, it, it refers in that New Testament context to the Old Testament in general. But here the word is used very specifically to refer to um, the laying down of doom proclamations to various nations or even in some cases it's just a city. Um, we'll get to that when we get to that. So what we have here is the heavy load of Babylon. That's a literal translation. What we have here is the thing that God's going to do to Babylon, and it ain't going to be pretty, says the Lord. So the burden of Babylon, the oracle of Babylon, yours might say, the heavy load of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did here from now until chapter 23, or until the beginning of chapter 24. Now for these next 11 chapters, you're going to get chunk after chunk after chunk of bad news, of doom and gloom, of despair, of judgment raining down or soon to rain down. And by say soon, I mean from God's perspective because here we're talking about God is going to punish Babylon and Babylon's not even Babylon yet. At the time Isaiah's writing this in the 700s, Babylon is just nothing. They're just a city-state, a vassal of Assyria. Nobody's thinking twice about them, um, but they're going to blossom and grow and become a mighty empire. Again, it'll be their second time to be an empire. And then defeat Assyria and become the big bad bully of the region, supplanting Assyria's role in that regard. And then they're going to conquer Judah. They're going to take Jerusalem, bring the people into exile, and that'll take us into Daniel, which we've already studied. And the people will be there for 70 years, and they'll get out, thanks to Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king. They'll get out, they'll go back home. That whole process is summarized as God is going to raise up this empire and then smack them down. And chapter 13 is not written to Babylon. It's written about Babylon. It's written to Judah. So they're reading about how God is going to use this empire to defeat them. When they're not even worried about that empire, they're worried about this empire, Assyria. And God is saying, forget them. These are the ones you've got to worry about because they're the ones who are going to thoroughly decimate you. But not permanently because now, chapter 13, I'm going to blow them up when the time comes. So look, I am in control is the overall point. So this is described in chapter 13 as this burden of Babylon. Verse 2, lift up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. This is God saying, I am going to summon the defeater of Babylon, which again, in context, I'm going to summon the defeater of the empire that's going to defeat the empire that you're worried about right now. So raise up the banner, wave the flag to summon upon the highest mountain you can find, exalt your voice, shout to them, shake the hand, hey, over here that they may go into the gates of the nobles. They may go into the places where the uppity people are, 
where they may go to where the fat cats are, where they may go to the people who sit in the back and eat grapes while the people who work for them go off and die in war. We're going to take this war, take this conquest, not just to the battlefield, but to the actual heart of Babylon itself, to the nobles of Babylon, to the uppities of Babylon. Verse 3, I have, God speaking, I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have called upon my mighty ones for my anger, even to them that rejoice in my highness. I Look at the like three-part list he gives you here. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have taken my people that I've set apart to do this task. He's not talking about the angels. He's talking about the army he will raise up, the empire he will raise up to defeat Babylon. Who that is, you'll find out later. So I have commanded this people that I've specially chosen, sanctified, the word means, my mighty ones, people who are powerful and strong to do the task, which is to defeat Babylon. But they're not strong because they're strong. They're strong because God is giving them strength. He's inflating their strength by his goodwill. Even to them that rejoice in my highness, who will celebrate every victory, and they'll think it's their victory, but in fact it is a reflection of God's greatness, God's highness, exaltedness. My Bible says highness. What does your Bible say there? Your Bible say kindness? Huh? Yeah. They will, re they will um, rejoice in thinking it's in them, but it's really in me that they're rejoicing. Because with every victory, it's my victory. Because I'm the one who's giving them the victory. Verse 4. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the host of the battle. God is describing now what he had already described about Babylon. Now he's describing it coming against Babylon. Earlier in this book, when he was talking specifically to Judah and about Judah and their sins and how they're going to be punished for their sins, he says, I'm going to raise up this people and they're going to march into your streets and they're going to have these thundering boots and they're going to have these uh, arrows of, of razors and their swords are going to pierce and cut. It's going to be blood running through the streets. This whole vivid, dark, terrible imagery that Judah had listened about them. Now God says the tables are going to turn and it's going to be about them. They're the ones who are going to have blood running in their streets. They're the ones who are going to be contending with an army that they can't deal with. Who are going to have a horse's hooves trampling down their streets and arrows piercing their flesh and so forth. So a lot of the same imagery is going to be repeated here. It's just the object is going to go from Judah to Babylon. Babylon defeating Judah, now somebody else defeating Babylon. The only one who's consistent through all of this is the one who's ultimately in control. And he happens to be the one that nobody is listening to. And that be God. God is the one in control. The hunter becomes the hunted. And Babylon is going to heal, hear the call to arms from the bare mountain. They're going to hear the rumbling of soldiers. My Bible says the noise of a multitude, an army in the mountains marching toward them. Like a whole nation seemingly is coming toward them. That's just how big this army is going to be. Who are they? We're not told yet. You get a hint in this chat, in this verse where it says it's going to sound like kingdoms, plural, are coming to you. But we still don't know exactly who we're talking about here. The point is, in the first 12 chapters of this book, Babylon, whenever they're described, they're described as the hammer. And now Babylon is the nail getting hammered. Verse 5. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Well, the Lord is not they, but that's look at the way Isaiah's description, his writing, kind of segues into from 
Who it is on earth, who is ultimately in control of it in heaven. Who it is on earth is they coming from this far country, coming from seemingly the as far away as you can see, coming from over the horizon, the end of heaven, as far from the sky, it seems like. And who is it? It is even the Lord. But it's not actually God. It's not Jehovah with some heavenly sword. It's the power of Jehovah being wielded in the form of this army that we just read about. And the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Well, again, already he's described Babylon like that. Babylon is my sword against you, Judah. Well, now somebody else is the sword against Babylon. So what's going to happen when that sword hits its mark? Verse 6. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. My Bible says howl, the beginning of verse 6. What does your Bible say? Whale. Yeah, wail. That's the word exactly. Uh, to to shriek and cry out in pain and agony. You, uh, to use a hammer again, you hammer your thumb. You don't just go, ah, shouldn't have done that. No, there's multitudes of tears and shouting and howling and jumping and falling off the ladder and screaming and so forth. And all these things that happen, I'm just assuming. These are all the things that happen. And that's the sound that you make, this persistent lingering pain. Howl in agony. It's not just a momentary um, uh, discomfort. It is a long-standing suffering you're going to go through. Why? What is it? It's not just the day of your invasion. It's the day of the Lord. Judgment day. Which to a Christian we hear and we think a grand, final, ultimate, eternal thing. But for the Old Testament, they use that phrase all the time to talk about whenever God says, all right, big day is here. We're doing something big here. Boom. It may be a good thing. It may be a bad thing. But it's a day which God has been planning and prepping for. And throughout the Old Testament, he makes a proclamation. This is coming. This is coming. It's coming. You're getting there. It's coming. The day of the Lord. Here it comes. Here it comes. And then, boom, it comes. Usually it's bad. Sometimes it's good. Joel, when he uses it, it's good. Isaiah, when he uses it, it's bad. Judgment day for Babylon. Verse 7. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every heart of man shall melt. This is talking about the Babylonian soldier who are in other contexts described as locusts and vipers and, and savages and wolves devouring a, a, you know, a, a, a sheep. You, you don't stand a chance against them. But here, the mighty Babylonian soldier holding his sword, his hands, when he sees this army that God has raised up against them, his hand's going to get weak. He's going to drop his sword. His stomach is going to melt in his gut. His bowels are going to be loosened. Verse 8. And they shall be afraid. Babylon will be. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain like a woman that travails. That's to say in labor pains. They shall be amazed one at another. And their faces shall be as flames. A lot of great little, little phrases here to pick apart here. So let's take them one at a time. Be afraid, Babylon. He says, be very afraid. The word means, when they, at the beginning of the verse, it says they shall be afraid. Does anybody's Bible say tremble? Anybody have tremble? Dismayed, terrified. Dismayed, terrified. Will seize them. Terror will seize them, like grip them, yeah. The word means to tremble. Have you ever been so afraid you shake? A little child, sure. Maybe even an adult. You're so afraid, especially after. Usually that's like you, your adrenaline just dumps into your system and you start shaking. Well, that's this idea here, except you're not even able to, to fight them. You're just shaking and trembling. You're, you're just gripped with fear. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them, like labor pains. Now, I've heard labor pains. Suddenly, everything's fine, and then, bam, labor pain. And then it's, then bam, labor pain, like that. It's the suddenness of it. It's the shock of it, right? 
and they will be it will be so sudden like suddenly we're on top of the world and all of a sudden we're not on top of the world anymore and it's not going to be the slow methodical thing where they slowly lose their power and prestige they're going to be the biggest baddest empire and then in one night they're going to lose it all and it's going to be so shocking middle of toward the end of the verse they shall be amazed at one another they're going to be looking around thinking yesterday we were the most important empire and now we're not and the last phrase, their faces shall be as flames. What does your Bible say? Flame. You get embarrassed. Your, your face gets hot, right? You flush. You, you feel heat in your face. That's the idea. They're going to be ashamed. They're going to be embarrassed because they're going to be so thoroughly defeated. Verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, the King James says, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Cruel is the word my Bible uses to describe it. Anybody else's Bible use that word? Good. Okay. Cruel, the way we use the word, as in the Uella Deville kind, we use that word to mean excessively, unnecessarily mean. But that's not what the word means biblically. The word biblically means violent and unsympathetic. It's not excessively bad because God never does anything excessively. He never does anything, whatever the opposite of excessively is. He never undersells. He never oversells. He always lands exactly how much he needs and whatever it is. So your grace is exactly how much grace you need. Your punishment is exactly how much punishment you need. He never gives you too much and you never get too little. You get the exact right amount. So that's not cruel. Whatever it is, though... It is violent sometimes. It is painful, shockingly so, and it is unsympathetic. The merciful God, the grace-giving God, when judgment day comes, it is past the time to repent. The time to repent is now, as Isaiah is writing, and he's saying, judgment day cometh. Judgment day is coming. Judgment day is on its way. Now is the time to repent. This is what the prophets were here for, to write these things and to say. This is, this is 200 years, 300 years before Babylon will fall. This is Isaiah now saying, the signs are coming. You need to repent because when it happens, it'll be too late to say, oh, I really am sorry. No, no. Now your head's getting cut off. You don't, as the sword is being swung, you don't get to say, oops, it's too late now. Now is the time to repent because when judgment day comes, it's unsympathetic. Wrath is the other word the Bible verse uses here. To attack with passion. Wrath invokes passion. He is not just half-heartedly. God always does everything wholeheartedly. And also, my Bible says, fierce anger. Literally, you ever been so angry, you snort like a bull? You can't even form the words. That's what God's done. And if you, if you look up in the, the heavenly host, and you see in the center of it all, the king of the angel, angelic army, and you see God, and he is so angry, he's snorting, you better fall on your knees before judgment day comes, because it's, it's going to be too late then. And you've, I've only ever seen my master snort in anger one time. And that's John 2, before he made a whip, and he flipped a table, and he drove the money changers out. That's snorting with anger. You don't want to see God do that. Well, here, that's how it's described. Babylon's going to see it. It's not going to be pretty. Verse 10. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. 
Spare me your stupid atheistic arguments. Isaiah is not trying to argue the moon produces its own light. It's just you look up and it's glowing. He doesn't give a flip about how it's glowing. It's reflecting the sunlight, all that nonsense. That doesn't matter. Just spare me all that, okay? We know what he means. This whole verse is very poetic anyway. He is not literally saying that the literal stars will turn off. He's not literally saying the constellations will suddenly not be there or that the sun will s stop giving its light. This is what it will feel like to a conquered Babylon. They will feel like, to use the modern phrase, the, the sky is falling, to use a chicken little expression, that everything is crashing down around them, that they have no hope, they have no help, and they look anywhere. Now, if you want to make it semi-literal, you can argue, well, the Babylonians worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. Those were three very important deities to them. So they had their sun god, their moon god, and their stars god. Maybe there was more than one of those. And Isaiah is saying, God is saying through, look at all the gods that you have that you would ordinarily rely on. But when I bring the hammer down, it's going to be a veil of darkness so thick, you won't even be able to see your gods to appeal to them. They won't be able to help you. They won't hear you. They can't comfort you. Like what God did to Egypt in the Exodus. He, each of the plagues attacks one of the famous Egyptian gods to show his superiority over them. Same idea there. Verse 11. And I will punish, the King James says, the world. Everybody's Bible say the world? All right, come back to that. For their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. It's not the actual world. Babylon is the world here. And that's a, 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 a synecdoche used throughout Isaiah and other texts to describe Babylon. It's a huge, massive empire. It's not... Literally global spanning. They're not over in the Western Hemisphere. They're not conquering whoever is over there and whatever was Chile or something. No, but as far as the, the world of its area was concerned, the known world, we say, Babylon was bee's knees. So when I'm going to destroy Babylon, I'm taking out the biggest there is. I'm taking on the world, God says, and the world will be punished. Babylon will be punished. And all the wicked thereof for all their sins. And as proud as they are, as arrogant as they are, we had a nice devotional about that, God says, I'm going to cut them at the knees and humble them. As I've said many times, you can either be humble or you can be humbled. And you don't want God to insert that little D at the end of the word because that D is destructive. I will humble you and you will be humbled. Not pretty. Verse 12. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Let's take the first half of that first this mighty army is coming in. So what's Babylon going to do? They're not just going to lay down their swords. They're not just going to give up and quit. They're going to go charging after them. Well, who fights in the army? The men fought in the army. Women were used in this era and many eras before and after. If they were used in army, they were used as spies. They were used as assassins. They were used as special operatives. But grunts are, uh, you know, infantry, guys holding swords and guys holding pikes and guys riding uh, horses and so forth. The men. The men were your rank and file. And the men go and they fight, but they're not fighting an army. They're fighting God. This, he's just using an army. And so they're not going to survive. They're going to lose so many that men are going to become so scarce, it's going to be like fine gold. Even a man more, more rare and precious than what my Bible calls the golden wedge of Ophir. Is that what your Bible says? O-P-H-I-R? Yeah. All right, we don't have a clue where, where Ophir is. We don't know. It's some location that was famous for its golden wedges. 
I don't know. That's, I don't, that sounds like either a breakfast dish or it sounds like a, a hot commodity. I'm going to assume it's the latter. Whatever it is, they were famous for it. It doesn't matter where the city's located. Give us a couple generations. We'll probably dig it up, as always happens. Oh, here's this town. The Bible mentions it. We don't know where it is, so the Bible's foolish. And then like five years later, we, somebody digs up a thing, and they find a thing with the name on it. Once again, the Bible proves itself. Given enough time, Ophir will reveal itself. Where it is now, we don't know. The point is, it had very rare, precious uh, items that were carved out of gold, a wedge. It just seems like it's not a big deal, but it was a big deal. And Isaiah's point is, that's how rare your average Joe will be. Why? Because verse 13, God says, I am going to shake the heavens, and I'm going to remove the earth out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. What's God going to do? He's going to make the sky fall. He's going to grab the mighty tree of Babylon. He's going to shake it. This is a metaphor you'll get later in the book. And all the fruit's going to fall out of it. He's going to shake the heavens, shake the whole sky itself. He's going to take the earth, which is stable and secure, and you're on it, and it's spinning, and everything's fine. He's just going to toss it up topsy-turvy, upheaval, flip the world upside down. The whole, the whole world is wrong. That's what Babylon's going to feel like when they're defeated so thoroughly. Verse 14. And it, Babylon shall be as the King James says, chased roe, a hunted deer, fleeing for its life, as a sheep that no man takes up. They shall every man turn to his own people and flee every one into his own land. They'll scatter like sheep without a shepherd. No one takes up. That's what shepherds do. Sometimes they have to pick up the sheep. Well, there's no shepherd around. They'll, they'll scatter is the idea of the metaphor. So they're going to be like this weak and skittish deer that just runs the first sign of trouble, a sheep that just flees without any place to go, and everyone will flee to his own land. The nation will be divided, will be chopped up in pieces. They will not be united anymore under an emperor, under a, a government. They'll be conquered. And so people will retreat within their own tribes, within their own family clans, within their own regional units. Because there'll be no consistent, powerful government of Babylon, at least, anymore. Verse 15. Everyone that is found will be thrust through, stabbed with the sword. And everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. There's no innocent bystanders. This guy's a soldier, he's going to be killed. This person standing next to a soldier, he's going to be killed. It's not God swinging the sword, because we're going to see some very horrific things coming up. In fact, it's the next verse, verse 16. This is the army that is coming, that is sent by the providence of God to conquer Babylon, that's going to be killing with reckless abandon and with no consideration for anyone else. Verse 16. Their children shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Imagine a father watching his son or daughter be murdered right in front of them by a conquering army that you were too powerless to stop. Their houses shall be spoiled. Imagine watching them take all of your goods out. And you have to sit there and watch as first go in the robbers to take all of your goods out and then go in the people bearing torches to burn down what's left. And you think, well, you've already stolen everything from me. Can I have my house at least? No, we're going to burn that down. And before you think how pitiful, I would remind you that in 606, in 586, pardon me, in 586, the Babylonian army marched its little hineys down into Jerusalem with torches and with people with big empty sacks. And they marched themselves right into the temple of God and they stole all the golden emblems inside the temple. Then they marched in with torches and they burned what they could down. They did it first. I'm not saying tit for tat, that makes it okay. I'm just saying this is what justice looks like. This is how God balances the scales. You did this because I allowed you to do this to punish my people. Now behind you comes another army, and they're coming in too. 
And if you thought they, if you thought you were big and bad, if you thought you went too far, they're going to go too far as well. Because what else are they going to do? They're going to rape your wives. The wives will be ravished. Into verse 16. It's not pretty. That's what it is. Who is this? Who is this huge, terrifying, mighty, vengeful, cruel, nasty army that God is going to allow to rise up to do this? Who is it? Mind you, remember, we're reading this. I'm a Jew reading Isaiah mid-700s, okay? Who is it? Verse 17. About Babylon, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. They're going to steal all their goods, but they don't even want it. They're just taking it because it's what you do. But they're not coming to conquer Babylon because Babylon is rich. Babylon is rich, but that's not why they're coming. They're coming to conquer Babylon because Babylon has a footprint, and they just want to co-opt it. They just want to take it over, and they'll kill as many men, women, and children as necessary. Just take Babylon's power and geopolitical influence and then expand from there. But I would just remind you what we're talking about here. You, I'm not going to draw the whole map because who has time for that? You've got... Judah, at this point, is like this big, all right? To scale, this big. Right. Assyria is like that big, all right? It's like a pea versus a potato, all right? And then over here is Babylon, which at this point is just, it's just a city. It's just a city. Now, they used to be big under Hammurabi. They were a big empire. And then they were defeated by the Hittites and the Kassites and things, and they were reduced all the way down to this one little, one little city-state. And they were a they're going to grow and get really big, and they're going to conquer, and they're going to do terrible things to Judah and bring their people into captivity when they're really big and so forth. But right now, this is where we are. This is 700, let's say 30 or so B.C. This is where we are. He is predicting while this huge empire is bearing down, already laying waste to Syria, all anybody's talking about, every Jerusalem Democrat Gazette article is about how Assyria is on the move. We need to be worried about Assyria. And Isaiah's like, forget Assyria. Babylon, look at Babylon. And they're like, Babylon? <laughs> Meanwhile, he's spending 13 chapters saying, you've got to worry about Babylon, but don't worry, because God's going to raise up the Medes. And you've got to like, <clears throat> the Medes, because the Medes aren't a kingdom, the Medes aren't an empire, the Medes aren't even a city, the Medes are just a tribe. The Medes are just a couple of families who have the same last name. They're just cousins and things. It's like, that little clan from Thida over there. Don't be afraid of them. Who's going to be afraid of them? And yet Isaiah is saying, look, they're going to blossom big enough to take out this empire, which, trust me, is going to blossom to take out this empire, which I don't, you don't need to trust me because you can see it is huge. And the whole point is, don't worry because, but don't worry because, you can see why they killed this guy. Not to accept it or condone it, but you can see why they heard Isaiah's message and thought, can we get another prophet in here who's talking some sense? Because they heard Isaiah's message and they thought, this is insanity. The Medes, verse 17, behold, I will stir up the Medes against him. And they're not going to care about their silver or their gold or anything of the sort. Verse 18, their bows will dash the Babylonian young men to pieces. And they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb, which babies. Their eyes shall not spare children. They're going to be coming to kill, left, right, up, and down. They don't care. Verse 19. And Babylon, glory of kingdoms, beauty of the Chaldees' legacy, excellency, pardon me, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. 
I would remind you way back in chapter 1. That's 11 weeks ago in this class, 12 weeks ago in this class. Way back in chapter 1, God said about Judah that if it wasn't for this little nugget of faithfulness in my nation, then they would be as Sodom and as Gomorrah. Chapter 1, verse 9. If it weren't for some faithful few, you would be as Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's not the phraseology here because there are no faithful few in Babylon. Babylon is just a means to an end. Babylon is just a tool. Babylon is not the people of God. Judah is the people of God. Most of them are wicked. Gone away from the Lord, fallen into idolatry. But within them are a few faithful ones. And from that core little nugget of faithfulness, the Messiah will come and save the world. Babylon, they're just wicked people. They're just sinners left and right. So God doesn't give them the caveat. He just says, they're going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And you're going to see, God says, what I do to a nation that is wicked. I'm going to devastate them. And sure enough, he will. The Medes, of course, that's just the one he uses. The Medes and the Persians are going to come together and form the Medo-Persian Empire, and they're going to conquer everything. But we already studied that in Daniel. So it is. Verse 20. It shall, it's talking about Babylon, it shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch a pitch tent there. As they're passing through, they're going to get to this region. After it's decimated, they're going to say, let's find a hotel somewhere else. We don't need to stay here. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. They're going to have their little animals. They have to be keeping an eye on. They're going to think, this doesn't seem like a very safe place to put the sheep. Let's find somewhere else to park it for the night. Verse 21. Instead, wild beasts of the desert shall lie there. Their houses shall be full of doleful creatures. What's just imagine like this ghost town where just the remains of burned out, hollowed out, gutted buildings remain. That's all the remains of what Babylon used to be. And it's it's havens for criminals and passers-by of ill repute and animals of wild nature coming in. Wild beasts of the desert, houses full of these wild creatures and owls dwelling there and satyrs, the King James says, wild goats. Just dancing, just frolicking, making a home there. No one's there to shoo them off because there's no one there, in other words. As I said a second ago, this is twice the Babylon, uh, the Babylonian region, which uh, if, if, because you know, post 9-11 and post-Iraq war, we very easily conflate Afghanistan and Babylon because you know, we had Afghanistan first and all of a sudden Babylon is now in the mix. And so you've got oh, Babylon, Iraq, I should say. It's, it's built on the remains. Iraq is in the mix. So you have Iraq and Afghanistan. And Iraq is just this dry, rocky, barren. Nothing grows there. Nothing should live there. But there's people in some caves there. Wasteland. Iraq is not like that. The former Babylon, the former, you know, I said I wouldn't drop it. It's just, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's this, this. You've got the, the Tigris and Euphrates River coming from the Persian Gulf. And it's just this paradise of greenery. It's beautiful. It's lush. It is the place where every person for centuries, when there would be a big conqueror, a big Cyrus-like conqueror, a big Alexander-like conqueror, someone like that, everybody would try to make Babylon this beautiful kingdom palace resort that it once was in antiquity. Hammurabi was there, built a sprawling empire, as I said, conquered by the Hittites, defeated by the Kassites, and then it was just a vassal state. The Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the Nabus all got involved there, grew it and made it a big mighty empire again, and then God's going <laughs> to smack it down. And now God is saying, after I smack it down the second time, 
this is it's not going to grow to its prominence again. Alexander, after Cyrus and them, Cyrus is going to basically just leave it gutted. Alexander is going to take over from Macedonia and Greece, and he's going to set his sights eventually. After he wept because there's no more worlds to conquer, he thought, well, I guess it's time to renovate. So I'm going to start renovating the rest of the world. So he set his sights on renovating the former Babylon and turning it into an eastern capital of his empire. But then he died, as tends to happen. Well, then the Caesars come to power, and one by one, they all kind of set their sights on potentially maybe, and they never got around to doing it. All the way up to Saddam Hussein, who spent billions and billions living there, living on the site, spent billions of his oil money to try to renovate it, to bring it back, to establish it as a Babylon empire again. But did he? No. Little, little things got in the way, and he did not get to do that. Over and over, people have tried. And it's just, especially now in the past 1,500 years, we'll summarize with a, a very Muslim monopolization of the region, it's just, it's never going to get to a place where it's stable and peaceful enough for any kind of a government to thrive to the even close to the level that it was here in the BCH. Do you have your hand up? So that's what he's prophesying here. You, you are huge and you're never going to be that big again. Verse 22. And the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses and dragons, the King James says, uh, jackals, hyenas perhaps even, in their pleasant pl palaces. And her time is near to come and her days shall not be prolonged. It's coming, and it's coming soon. But again, right now, you're actually bigger than them. And he's saying, soon, you're going to be almost defeated. In the meantime, they're going to grow so big that they're going to finish the job. But don't worry, I'm going to take care of them with the Medes and the Persians. Now, you read all this. Here's chapter 13. And you think, all right, but I'm the Judean. I'm the guy from Judah. I'm reading the note. What's the point? Why, why does this affect me? For that, we go to chapter 14. And let's, because we have about five minutes left. Chapter 14, verse 1. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob, and will yet choose Israel, and set them in their own land, and the strangers shall be joined with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. We are, at this point in history, about a hundred years away, more or less, from Babylon taking Judah into captivity. But Isaiah, here in this text, is celebrating Victory over Babylon. They haven't even lost. And God's like, all right, let's 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 have a party because we're going to defeat Babylon. And they haven't even won yet. Babylon hasn't even won yet. We haven't even lost yet. And we're already celebrating the victory. But that's the way God's mind works. He's always thinking ahead. He's always 10 steps ahead. And he's always celebrating before we've even lost to win again. So he says three things here in verse 1. He says, God will have mercy on Jacob. The remnant will be spared. The captivity will end. The people will go home. Two, God will choose Israel. He has a plan. He has no plan for Babylon. He's going to use Babylon and destroy Babylon. He has a plan for Judah. He's going to use Judah. He's going to punish Judah. He's going to bring Judah back. And third, God will set them in their own land. They're here. They're going to be taken into captivity. Cyrus is going to come. He's going to let them go back. They're going to get to go home again. Why? Because the Messiah is coming, not through Babylon, not through Persia, not through the Medes, not through Assyria. The Messiah is coming through Judah and in Judea. He will come from this land. So he's got to go back there so his people can be there. Verse 2. And the people shall take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the Lord for servants and handmaidens. And they shall take them captives whose captives they were. And they shall rule over their oppressors. 
We had this a couple of chapters ago, this way that Isaiah describes what ultimately is unity in Christ. It's just, it's so hard to get that idea through the people reading it in the initial time period, through to the Judeans' mind, to say to them, these people who are coming to conquer you, eventually through the Messiah, that race of people will be your brother and sister through the Messiah. Because all they think about the Messiah is that's Abraham's ultimate promised descendant through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through David, will come this great king, and he will establish this great kingdom. And we, God's people, and they would do this as they said it because they're so prideful, we, God's people, will be the, the citizens of that kingdom. And all through the Old Testament, God said, yep, 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 but so will all the other nations. Yep, but yeah, you're the people, you're the people, and you'll, he'll be your king, but you'll be everybody else's king too. And the Jews would hear that, and they think, ah, none of that matters. We'll be his people. And he, they would hear God say, and so will the other nations. Ah, that doesn't matter. We'll be his people. So those little hints, those little promises are just kind of woven throughout because the people just simply did not have the ears to hear it, to understand it. And so here it's described as you're going to take those people who put you into captivity, and you're going to be captives over them. But when the actual Messiah came, he didn't say, all right, let's start picking up our swords. Let's start putting boots on some throats and let's start making some captives. It's not what he did. He came with a message of peace and unity. And so it's, it's Isaiah putting in terms they could understand because what is victory to an army, especially here where there was no Geneva Convention? What is victory to an army back then? My boot on your head, on your neck, me over you, my flag planted on your land. Okay, Isaiah says to them, you're going to have victory. Your enemies are going to conquer you, but God's going to give you victory over them. In your mind, what it's going to look like is a flag planted on their land and a boot on their neck. What's actually going to happen is the cross planted and everybody hugging and kissing and loving each other. That's children of God. But they're not ready to hear that, so it's filtered. Verse 3. And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and from the hard bondage wherein you were made to serve, dot, dot, dot. It's not the end of the sentence. This is God's prophecy of coming after captivity. That's how the chapter begins. I'm going to bring you home. You're going to have your own land again. And in that day, when I give you that rest and you're freed from bondage, verse 14, then you shall take up this. My Bible says proverb. What does your Bible say in verse 4? Anybody have song? Taunt. Taunt. Okay. Yeah, I guess contextually that makes more sense because, again, it's filtered through this idea of what does victory look like back then. But it's it's this, the song of victory for an army that's won. So I guess some light taunting is, is understandable. You'll take up this, we'll say taunt, against the king of Babylon. And you'll say, how has the oppressor ceased and the golden city ceased? You'll take up this, we'll say taunt, against this not just Babylon, but specifically the king, the most untouchable, powerful man of this empire that oppressed you. And you'll say, ha, not oppressing anymore, is he? And you'll say, ha, look at his city. Lights are turned off. We won. We, we shut their lights up. We knocked their lights out. Verse 5. And the Lord has broken. This is still the taunt, which really, honestly, it's a song, but so be it. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. You oppressed us, you beat us, you knocked us down, and God took your staff of oppression, and he broke it over his holy leg. Verse 6. He, still taunting, singing, he who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, spanking, 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 he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted, and none hinders. 
the way that he, this is talking about he, the, the ruler of Babylon, will continually abuse his captors. That's what it feels like. But zoom out, and what is it? What's ultimately going on? God says, I'm going to use Babylon to punish my people. So with every strike of the Babylonian ruler, it's a spank to the Judean backside from the Heavenly Father. He's just using them. And they're saying, and now the spanking's over. Now the one who is spanking us spanks us no more. Verse 7. And now the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. And they break forth into singing. You know, it's, it's like that, it's that calm, and then you take the hat, and you throw it in the air, and you graduate, right? That kind of idea, right? That's what it's like. It's like the victory is, is won, the battle is done, you've had your taunting, and then you kind of look around, and then there's just this moment of serenity. The battle's over, <coughs> everyone's tired, and it finally sinks in. Hey, we just won. And then you jump, and there's a freeze frame, and the credits roll. That's what it is. That's what they're saying here. Verse 8. Yea, the fir trees rejoice at you, and the cedars of Lebanon rejoice, saying, Since you are laid down, no, the King James says, Feller, that's not a southern man, that's a guy who cuts down trees, is come up against us. Nature itself rejoices when Babylon is put down, because when Babylon marched through and they conquered, Babylon cut down trees on their way to conquer. So now Babylon's gone, and now the trees can say, No, Feller. No fellers coming against us, y'all. No cut down tree guy is coming against us. Does your Bible say feller? Huh? Tree cutter. Well, that's boring. Feller is much more fun. It's like when Paul says, I reckon. You know, it's totally different when you hear in Arkansas than if you read it in like Canada. When Paul says, I reckon, I think, yeah, he does. I reckon. All right. Anyway, verse 9. Hell, grave, Sheol, from beneath is mood for thee. To meet you at your coming. This is the king of Babylon. It stirs up the dead for you, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up their thrones, all the kings of the nations. We'll stop here. But this dead is going down. And those who are already dead, those who dwell in the underworld, they're like, come on. Come on, baby. Come on. Come join us. Imagine that spectacle. If you're in the poetry, the king of Babylon, and you're on your throne, and now you're going down into the pit where those who dwell in the grave are summoning you on, happy for a new recipient. That's the metaphor. All right, we'll stop there. Chapter 14, verse 10. We'll get some taunting from the people of the dead next. Thank you all.